in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all the steps and the path of omniscience, May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Majushri, please accomplish this. again we have the hum uh, ah hum hum the buzz thank you for reminding me so tonight we dive into the treatise pointing out the Tathagata heart Tathagata garba the Buddha nature uh, by the third karma by Ramjan Dorje and uh, we've some of us, most of us, if not, I think almost all of us, have been through a similar text by Mipam Rimshe and the Tathagata Art, and uh, sort of be interesting to compare them. But let's dive into this one for the time being, for starters. <laughs> See if we can uh, figure out what this one's about. And let's start by taking a look at the outline. It's always helpful to look at the outlines, and I have two versions today. We got the long and the short. Let's start with the short outline. So uh, we got this stuff, this sort of traditional way of going through text or a topic that has an explanation of the title. So, and by the way, we have uh, this is a commentary on this text by John Grimkongchul. These outlines don't really indicate that, but the outline is really the outline of the commentary. There's an instruction on the title. There's a paying homage to um, Rangjung Dorje and so forth. And then there's the essence. Start with the essence. And uh, add some scriptural quote, quotations. There's sort of the false, the, the uh, path of false imagination and correct imagination of like what to do and what not to do what to accept and what to reject and then the qualities of the two kayas of the buddha the form formless kayas of the buddha sort of summary of the whole thing right there and uh the path then in more detail is how to overcome the obstructions through these two imaginations and uh, the order of uh, doing that, and then the matter of attaining purity, despite the Buddha heart being unchanging. And so 
this gets to the heart of the situation, so to speak, which is how to describe the Buddha nature as being present but not unchanged. Uh, present in ascension being, but not the same as a Buddha, and present in ascension being, uh, but not unchanged as that ascension being goes through the stages of, the, of purification and becomes a Buddha, transitions into a Buddha and loses its status as a sentient being. And uh, the term sentient being and Buddha only appear when there is either uh, confusion or clarity, wisdom, respectively. And uh, instruction on causelessness and outer causes. So it's a little bit of a discussion about um, how does this transformation occur from a so-called so sentient being to a Buddha and the role that uh, mentation plays in that, that are the role that uh, the cultivation of the mind through the paths of uh, discipline, meditation, and wisdom plays in that. And then what's the results, so to speak, the uh, wisdoms, the Buddha wisdoms, the all-accomplishing wisdom, the wisdom of equality, and the way in which the three kayas uh, exist as permanent, and then uh, dispelling some uh, ambiguity in the situation, and then a summary, gaining certainty about the explanation of the essence through scriptures, and this, the uh, essential meaning taught in all the sutras and tantras about the Buddha nature. And then we have the detailed outline that uh, I circulated, which uh, Henrietta was very kind to uh, supply. And uh, today we'll be going through this title, the homage, the, the quotes from sutras, and then we'll start with the detailed explanation, which in uh, when you sort of pick up the headings from John Control and use that as the outline of the text, he has this structure, which is explaining the Abhidharma Sutra quote, uh, false and correct imagination, and then the Buddha heart. And uh, we get to somewhere around uh, past the Dharmakaya, I think. No, uh, the Rubakaya today. Okay, so we're on page 203 of our book. This wonderful book called Luminous Heart. It's very simple, just sort of a really easy read. Just skim through it and immediately absorb it, right? Sort of thing. <laughs> it's almost as easy as putting on a sweatshirt. <laughs> it's not happening either. So we'll forget about that. Focus on one thing at a time. Commentary on the treatise and pointing out the Tathagata heart illuminating the intention of Rongjong Dorje. So I thought maybe we could all say this little uh, supplication together. I pay homage to the Guru, the victor, and his children, supreme heart of everything, samsara, nirvana, changeless throughout the three phases, and endowed with inseparable qualities. I pay homage to the Dharma Dhatu, protectors of beings with infinite knowledge and loving care self-service and victor and your children who point out this profound reality of this heart i bow to you with a mind full of undivided devotion 
the sphere of the soul, all-seeing one as the heart of the victors. Its way of being is illuminated by the second omniscient one's excellent text, which I shall expound a little. Nice job on uh, being gender neutral, huh? And that, you know, similar to some of the chants we do, right? There was no uh, indication of any gender there. That was pretty good. Carl Brunholzel. Excuse me a second. So that's uh, his homage to Rongjung Dorje. And uh, so, you know, it's important to note that we're getting Jung Kongchul's take on this text, which, uh, you know, you could view as like completely of the same mind as Rong Jung Dorje. They're one, sort of one stream of enlightened mind. Uh, Jung Kongchul being uh, the teacher of the uh, student, sort of uh, taken over by the Ninth Situ. Situ and brought to Peipong, one of the main monasteries of the Kagyu tradition, becomes a Peipong Tulku, and uh, the teacher of, uh, I don't know, some Karmapa, the 11th Karmapa, as well as the 10th Situ. And so you'd think that he imbibed the same wisdom as Rongsho uh, Dorje drank and, and emitted. Uh, Carl, as we saw in our introduction, sort of felt that John uh, Kongchul gave a bit of a, a slant to Rongjun uh, Dorje as being a Shantongpa. So we'll see for ourselves. But uh, many current masters uh, sort of uh, cleave to John Kongchul without any problem, including the Karmapa and Kimpo Tsuchim Gyomso and Pula Brimshe and so forth. Anyway. Towards the end, the third stanza has a line that says it's way of being illuminated. I'm sorry, it's way of being is illuminated by the second omniscient ones, which, I don't know, there's no footnote, but I'm taking it that the first one was the Buddha and the second one was Rongjong Dorje, because otherwise there's too many others missing. The omniscient victor, the Buddha, spoke about this heart in the collection of the sutras of the final definitive meaning, i.e. the third turning, and in the very profound collection of tantras, in an unconcealed and clear way. The illustrious sons uh-oh, of this victor, such as the mighty lords of the tenth Bhumi, the regent Ajita, which is an epithet of Maitreya, it means the heir, Regent and Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, as well as the Mahasiddha Saraha and his heirs, noble Nagarjuna. And this is the traditional lineage in the Mahamudra scheme of things where Nagarjuna is uh, either lives 600 years and becomes a student of Saraha, or this is a different Nagarjuna. But there is a Nagarjuna as a student of Sarha, and Venerable Asanga and others commented on it as being the Buddha's direct and straightforward intention. The way of being of the very profound actuality of this heart, of the Tathagata heart, does not fit within the scope of the minds of those who roam the, the sphere of dialectics because it's totally contradictory. It's illogical. 
It has these contradictory qualities of being simultaneously empty and present, and empty and full, empty in essence and yet full of Buddha qualities. So it's beyond the sphere of logical mind. Excuse me. It was extensively illuminated by the second mighty sage, Rongjong Dorje, the charioteer, who was the first in the land of snow mounds to utter the unassailable great lion's roar of the heart that is the definitive meaning. Which is an interesting statement to make because there were many subsequent to him who spoke about Buddha nature in this way, but uh, um, it's uh, it's debatable whether he was the first, but according to Jogna Contral, he was. The quintessence of all his excellent words in this treatise on pointing out is this treatise, sorry, pointing out to Tathagata Heart, which has these five parts, the title, the homage, the introduction by means of scripture, then a detailed explanation, and a conclusion, which is the Tibetan way of organizing an outline, which totally is sort of unbalanced, because the, the majority of the text is in item four. The introduction, instruction on the title, so he goes through the etymology of the title, which is uh, not terribly helpful. Let's see, instead of going through it in detail, um, I'm skipping a couple of sentences. Every few sentences, he sort of sums up the etymological analysis. Since it is the matrix or body of all dharmas, it is also said to be the dharmakaya. Since it is the suchness of all entities, it is indicated by the term heart. And let's see. Uh, in general, the word heart applies to being undeceiving, enduring, indivisible, and so forth. Thus, here too, it is taken to have these meanings. Since the Tagata and the heart are connected by having the same nature, they are linked through the connective term. He's talking, he's uh, analyzing the term in terms of its grammatical structure. Since this treatise properly points out the meaning of the heart, it is called pointing out. <laughs> the heart. Um, the nature of a treatise is to express topics like this, is to be a discourse through which the author, with a mind free from the distractions of the afflictions, comments on the intentions of the Buddha's words and teaches the path to liberation. And for this we are incredibly grateful to people like Ramjan Dorje and uh, John Gilconshul so that we don't have to read endless sutras, which beautiful as they are, are endless and uh, very long, very repetitive, and not clearly structured in a way that makes uh, understanding, at least for people like myself, of small minds. So I really appreciate when there's people like John McControl and Rangjong Dorje who organize, you know, vast hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of pages of sutras into a know, concise text like this. It's, it's very cool, because there are uh, thousands of pages of sutras on the Tathagata. Gorba, sorry. Um, let's see, I'll skip the Herm, uh, Herman's etymology, and at the bottom is an interesting one. In terms of treatises being classified as superior and inferior, it is said that there are nine types. Hmm. 
such as meaningless ones, wrong, ones with wrong meanings, and, and then there's meaningful ones, <laughs> which we're going to pick. Uh, in terms of function, there are three, those that are being bring scattered material together, those that comment on what is profound, and those that restore corrupted or deteriorated scriptural traditions. Interesting that they have these categories indicating that there are many texts in those categories. So, like the last one in particular, where there's traditions that have sort of fallen apart and are not, uh, the texts are literally fallen apart. And uh, so somebody comes along, somebody like John McCultural or uh, John Young, can't say Wangpo the Great, and they reconnect the, back to the authors of the text through visionary means and resurrect the meaning of the text and that and the tradition. From among these types, this one is here is included on the categories of the three superior treatises. Um, all, in terms of its function, it belongs to those that bring scattered materials, which is what I was trying to say about the thousands of pages of sutras together and comments on what is profound. So thousands of pages of sutras condensed and, uh, and structured, centralized. Uh, let's see. Paying homage, I pay homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. That pretty much covers it. It's a safe way to go. In terms of the expedient meaning, Buddhas are endowed with consummate relinquishment and realization. Uh, when, when summarized as having two aspects, Buddhahood has the two aspects of relinquishment of all negative qualities, all afflictions, and realization of all powers and wisdoms and, and truths. Uh, the relinquishment of having awakened from the sleep of ignorance and the wisdom of mind having unfolded towards all, all knowable objects. So omniscience. Bodhisattvas are the courageous ones who one-pointedly have in mind the attainment of bodhi, wisdom, the naturally pure dharmadhatu for the welfare of all beings. To all of these noble ones, I, i.e. Rangjun Dorje, pay homage with my three gates, body, speech, and mind, full of great respect. Or in terms of the definitive meaning of Buddha is the entity in which primordially the afflictions are not established and are purified while the enlightened qualities are spontaneously present and unfolded. So that's an important statement um, in terms of the definitive meaning of Buddha is an entity. <laughs> For, it's not a person. It's not a, not a, not a human. Buddha is an entity. It's an alien of some sort uh, in which primordially the the afflictions are not established, which is not really different from other sentient beings, where if, uh, uh, afflictions, if there's a nuance there, I guess they exist, but they're, whether they're established or not is questionable in sentient beings. They're certainly existing, but uh, in the Buddhas, they're, they're both not existing and not established, uh, as well as being purified, and sentient beings' afflictions are by no means purified, and enlightened qualities are present in sentient beings, but they're not unfolded. So this is the nuance of how to how to understand Buddha nature as having this quality of being present, but not uh, purified of afflictions and not um, un unfolded, which is a really odd term or translation for uh, developed or blossomed in terms of its qualities.
This means, uh, sorry, this means it is the conate or co-emergent basic state of the fundamental nature bodhicitta or the mahasukakaya. Mahasukakaya is a weird term. Uh, that's like a sort of, uh, I, I don't know, the, the nuance of it is, is vague to me, but you see it every once in a while. Another way of calling Buddhas. If this is classified through the aspects in which it manifests, it appears starting with the five kayas and the five wisdoms up through infinite kinds of kayas and wisdoms. While bodhisattvas such as Maitreya and Kshitigarbha, who is uh, the bodhisattva of earth, I think, appear as the essences of the pure six object-related consciousnesses. So the term paying homage may also be applied to Rongjong Dorje's bowing down to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the manner of encountering the view of the basic nature. Paying homage as being a, a, a way of encountering reality. Thus, through the special action of paying homage to special objects, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, uh, special purposes will be accomplished. The accumulation of meroism, presumably the fundamental disposition of the audience is awakened by that. Natural freedom from obstacles is established. The principles of Dharma are spread for a long time as through having generated bodhicitta. Obstacles will be prevented. So his paying homage to Buddhism Bodhisattvas uh, is, a, uh, is that incentive in us to, for all those things to happen, to give rise. Uh, reference to some scriptures, this thing called the Abhidharma Sutra, sort of nebulous uh, text in the Mahayana tradition, and then a quote from the very famous Hevadra Tantra, one of the main tantras in the new so-called new wave of translations in Tibet from the 11th century onward, and one of the main ones that Marpa, the translator, brought from India. First from the Abhidharma Sutra, it is said, though beginningless, it entails an end. What is naturally pure and consists of permanent dharmas is not seen, since it is obscured by a beginningless cocoon, just as in the example of a golden statue, which is obscured. The datu of time without beginning. And datu is usually like space or realm of time without beginning. This is like the... Uh, the area that go that's beyond where the Webb telescope is going, by the way, very apropos to our discussion before, is the matrix of all phenomena because it exists. It exists. That's an interesting term, way of uh, relating to it, referring to it. All beings and also nirvana are obtained, are possible. The Sugata heart mind is such, free from all reference points such as beginning, arising and ceasing, and the obscurations are not established as being one or different. They're not one or different, and we've been through this with other things, but they're not one or different because one of them doesn't exist, so you can't compare them, right? You can guess which one doesn't exist, really. Therefore, the stains neither having a beginning in terms of some temporal continuum nor a beginning in terms of some real substance I'm sorry, neither have a beginning in terms of temporal continuum nor in terms of substance. Consequently, though samsara is beginningless, once the reality that is free from stains 
and dwells within ourselves becomes manifest. The Tathagata, the Garbha Buddhahood with its two excellent welfares, uh, meaning for self and other, is accomplished. In this sense, samsara entails an end. So this odd situation where you have something that is beginningless but does have an end, i.e. samsara. In the essence of the Sugata heart, the stains are naturally pure. And since this heart is a chain, is changeless throughout its three phases of being called and appearing as sentient beings, bodhisattvas and buddhas, it consists of permanent dharmas. So, um, it is it is changeless throughout its three phases. Therefore, it consists of permanent dharmas that are changeless throughout those three phases. But there are these three phases of beings. It naturally resides within the mind stream of sentient beings, but since in the state of ascension being it, it is obscured by a cocoon that coexists with it since beginningless samsara, since that beginningless beginning, it is not seen as it is until these stains are eliminated through the conditions of studying and so on. This is just as in the example of a Buddha statue made of the element of gold being obscured by things such as lotus, a lotus or mud that's not being seen and referring to these famous analogies that uh, take their origin in the Tathagata and Garbha Sutras of the, attributed to the Buddha. Uh, this corresponds to the meaning that is clearly taught through the nine examples in the Tathagata Garbha Sutra and is explained in the Uttara Tantra, those famous nine examples that map out the five paths in this amazing way. The first line of this first verse above is stated in terms of both mistakenness and liberation. The terms, the second in terms of the basic nature, and the third and fourth lines solely in terms of the manner of being mistaken. Um, you know, referring back to that, the two verses from the Abhidharma Sutra above. The latter verse gives a brief introduction to the Alia, the basic element of time without any previous beginning, such that it could be said it originated at just this point which is the disposition or cause of Buddhahood. The Sugat heart is the matrix or support of all afflicted and purified phenomena. It's important to note that this is the, the not the Alia of Vishnana, but this is the Alia. And Jamgun Kachal does not hesitate to use this term and talk about it, whereas Rongjung Dorje does not talk about the Alia, but only uh, refers to something uh, that has its qualities but does not use that terminology. Uh, therefore, as a general name, it is called Alia, just as with murky water in which water and earth are mixed, wisdom and consciousness dwell together as a mix. Because the Alia exists through ignorant imagination that is improper mental engagement, karma, afflictions, skandhas, tattus, and ayatanas arise. Thus all beings of samsara and once this basic element is liberated from the fetters of apprehender and apprehender, also the great nirvana, the ultimate one of the three kinds of enlightenment, shravaka, pratika, buddha, and bodhisattvas, called perfect buddhahood, are obtained. This corresponds to the Uttara Tantras and Nomalagarshans, clearly expressing the ways of being mistaken and liberated as being based on the basic element. And then they go through this scheme of like what rests on what, 
which is like this metaphor for the development of conceptual mind. So in this instance, could we say the alia here is the ground of all beings? Yes, the ground of all, of the ground of being. The ground of being, okay. Yeah, it's sort of before all beings, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you catch the nuance. That's true. And so he quotes, uh, skipping that first line, he quotes the Dharmadhatu Stava, which is a text, the praise of Dharmadhatu by Nagarjuna. The basic element, which is the seed, is held to be the basis of all dharmas. Through its purification, step by step, the state of Buddhahood we will attain. And then secondly, a quotation from the Hevadra Tantra, a passage in the Tantra says, Tantra says, sentient beings are Buddhas, indeed. However, they are obscured by adventitious stains. If these are are removed, they are Buddhas. Thus, primordially, sentient beings are Buddhas indeed in terms of the nature of their minds being spontaneously present. <laughs> their minds are spontaneously present and free from reference points. Primordially, our, our minds are spontaneously present and free from reference points. However, however, the bad news is they are obscured by the adventitious stains of apprehender and apprehended. Those two devilish creatures apprehender and apprehended. If these obscurations are removed through the proper means in terms of the fundamental ground being revealed, they are labeled as Buddhas. It's important to label them. The manner in which the essence of mind is completely pure and yet obscured by adventitious stains is comparable to the murkiness of water, a film on gold, or clouds in the sky. It's funny, film... When the, when the Buddha lived, film didn't really mean film. And now film doesn't really mean film either because it's all digital. <laughs> so there was this short period of time where film meant like a film over something. Anyway, the Madhyanta Vibhaga says, Afflicted and purified phenomena represent its being with stains and without stains. Being pure is asserted to be like the purity of the water element, gold, and space. Likewise, Nagarjuna says again in that same text, spotless are the sun and the moon, but obscured by the fivefold stains. These are clouds and smoke and mist, Rahu's face and dust as well. And we saw this earlier in uh, either some other text or the introduction or both. Similarly, mind so luminous is obscured by fivefold stains through desire, malice, laziness, agitation, and doubt too. In this example, it's said that mind is such that Sugata's heart is endowed with the quality of natural luminosity and so on, just like the sun and the moon. However, temporarily, it is covered by adventitious obscurations, cloud-like covetous desire, which moistens samsaric existence, moistens smoke-like maliciousness. Wow, interesting uh, uh, description, smoke-like maliciousness, which is created by a mind full of hatred, Mist-like laziness, which is minds being made hazy through ignorance, a mind agitated with pride, which is like Rahu's face that covers the sun. And uh, when there's, uh, what are they called, sun, um, those things, the sun disappears, and doubt produced by all kinds of mistaken views, which is like swirling dust. Doubt being like 
caught in a swirling dust storm. These five obscurations do not taint the nature of the mind, but from their perspective of mistaken appearances, it seems as if it is obscured by them, thus becoming unclear. It's interesting as um, to, to uh, sort of recall how much Trumper Rinpoche talked about doubt, the obscuration of doubt, and how other teachers talk about that and the importance of confidence in one's understanding or in one's basic nature. Good, basic goodness or whatever, but in nature. Okay, so now that was the summary. Now we dive into the detailed explanation, which has these five points, an explanation of one of the quotes, uh, examining the role of conceptual mind in the creation of samsara and nirvana, uh, here called false and correct imagination, and then explaining the nature of the Buddha heart, Tathagata the Garbha, directly. And then... Uh, it says determining it through answers to objections, which is more like um, if you if you look at the, the detailed outline, just like briefly to to uh, take a shot at that again quickly. Here's the the uh, section called determining through answers to objections, causelessness. You know, how is, how is the, the cause of the change brought about? Uh, certainty about the role of conceptual mind, here called meditation. And then the five wisdoms, all accomplishing the, act, the act, essence of it, the activity of it, the wisdom of equality. Uh, well, at least a couple of them. Not all five wisdoms, sorry. A couple of key wisdoms. And then the kayas. Three kayas, dispelling uncertainty, you know, uh, refining our understanding of nuances. Okay, so uh, the first one of these, which is the explanation of the quote, has these six parts, and we'll just dive in, which, which means starting with the, uh, the way that it's beginningless, which is the top of page 209. It's 4.1.1, in case that helps, in case you need it. Anyway, here beginningless means that there's absolutely nothing before that. The time is this very moment. <laughs> there's nothing before every moment. How could it come via somewhere else? Here in the passage quoted above, the meaning of beginningless is as follows. Before that essence, the pure nature, of the mind, there is nothing that can be called Buddhahood. And before the latent tendencies of ignorant mistakenness, there's absolutely nothing that can be called a sentient being. So, by definition, uh, unless you have uh, you know, wisdom and ignorance, there's no Buddhas or sentient beings. The time of samsara and nirvana appearing and being mistaken is, sorry, as to is this very moment, every moment. It does not come from some other place because all phenomena are dependently originated and so have no real uh, source and no real um, ending. The 60 verses on emptiness, the Yukti Shastika by Nagarjuna says, from dependent origination stem the causes and results of all beings. Apart from this, there are no sentient beings at all. From phenomena that are solely empty, Nothing but emptiness. 
force arises. You can't have something come out of nothing and nothing come out of something. The meaning of the basic element itself, the basic element is without creator, but since it bears its own characteristic, it is labeled in that way, I think, as being the basic element. In the basic element, the Buddha heart all Buddha qualities are complete. Because they exist in this way, it is without any other creator of something new that did not exist before. But since it bears its own characteristic, its essence being changeless, it is labeled in that way, that is, the basic element or disposition in the sense of a cause. So, uh, the, the inexplicable nature of Buddha nature is being uh, without creation, but having its own entity. The dharmas that dwell in that element, the dharmas are explained as appearing as both samsara and nirvana, which is called the ground of the latent tendencies of ignorance. The movement of the formations of correct and false imagination is the producing cause, and the causal condition is explained the alia. The dharmas that dwell as the ba- in the basic element are explained as appearing as both the existence of samsara and the peace of individual or personal nirvana. The collection, you know, some sort of dualistic nirvana. The collection of the latent tendencies of these two is also called the ground of the latent tendencies of ignorance. Uh, due to the movements of the formations of both correct imagination, which is the remedies, what to reject, what to accept, knowing knowing that, and false imagination, not knowing that, samsara, it is the causal condition that produces both samsara and nirvana through black and white so-called tendencies, respectively. This is known as the alia, which is explained with this meaning in mind as being that ground from which one can go either way, so to speak. The matrix itself, the matrix is the heart of the victors, victors being the Buddhas, the conquerors. False imagination rests on the purity of mind. There's nowhere else that false imagination can rest. There can be no other basis other than the, fall, the purity of mind. Henrietta. Um, so this last 4.1.3, the term alia is used there in the quote. That's Ramjan Borges' text, right? Yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, is that... It seems to me that he switched to the alia vijnana now because he's calling it the, the ground of the latent tendencies of ignorance. Okay. But it's, it, it's unclear to me. Uh-huh. Okay. Which one he's he is talking about? And uh, uh, maybe if you could check the footnote. I don't know. Five fifteen. You can yeah. just click on them. It right? doesn't. Yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. This term found in both the something something and the Uttara Tantra is an equivalent of the Alia, remainders of which are even present in Arhathood, personal Nirvana. And on the ten bhumis of bodhisattvas, I don't know if that really explains it. Well, that does to me. He's talking about all the vishnana, which vishnana, is in, okay. those, in those situations, but not in the situation of a book. 
So, uh, interesting shift there from Alia to Alia, Vijnana, without explaining it. <laughs> interesting. Um, back to 4.1.4. Thank you for that, Henrietta. So, thus the matrix or support of all phenomena, samsara and nirvana, is mind as such. It's the heart of the victors. False imagination and all the karmas, afflictions, and sufferings produced by it rest on the natural, complete purity of mind as such. However, since the natural luminosity of mind as such has the nature of being unconditioned, being free from arising by and ceasing, it is neither based on any of these phenomena nor tainted by their arising and ceasing. So the, the fundamental ground is the natural luminosity mind, whereas the false imagination mind rests on it not vice versa. From the Atara Tantra, an improper mental engagement rests on the purity of mind, but the nature of mind does not rest on any of these phenomena. The nature of mind is rests in space. The matter of existing in that way, this purity exists in that way. <laughs> As this just described, though it exists through ignorant imagination, it is not seen, and therefore is samsara the very not seen of the true nature of reality, being samsara. This mind of such, the heart of the victor, is naturally com natural complete purity with its essence being empty, its nature being lucid or clearly knowing, and its way of appearance being unimpeded as being anything uh, and everything exists in that way, that is, as the nature of the three kayas residing in all sentient beings. Though it exists like that being obscured to ignorant imagination, its own essence is not seen or realized. Therefore, this is samsara in the form of the realms of the six kinds of beings who are drowning in the ocean of mistaken imagination. And uh, the Bodhicitta Vivarana, praise to Bodhicitta by Nagarjuna, says, Through their ignorant minds, people see illusions. Mirages, the city of Gandharvas. Gandharvas are beings that live on odors, uh, and so on, the appearance of form and such. It's just like that. They're affectionately known as the odor eaters. And the, Dr. Scholl got that name from them, apparently. The meaning of end, when that is eliminated, it is nirvana, which is conventionally called. This is the end. In this way, through understanding that those adventitious stains, the factors to be relinquished, were never established from the very beginning, the conceptions of apprehender and apprehended, and of something to be accepted or rejected or eliminated. Therefore, when the actuality of samsaras and nirvanas and separability is revealed due to having passed into nirvana beyond existence, it is just the aspect of being free from stains, being pure of what is adventitious, which is conventionally called samsara as an end. However, because mind is such the heart of the victors is primordially pure by nature, its qualities dwell within it in an intrinsic fashion. So its qualities are intrinsic to it, whereas uh, the afflictions are adventitiously uh, residing there. Um, 
in its essence, there's nothing to be improved. So uh, in reality, there's no development that takes place. The glorious Chakra Sambra Tantra says, no matter whether Buddhists have arrived or not arrived, in every respect, the unceasing nature of phenomena remains devoid of increase and, uh, sorry, and decrease, yes. Therefore, it is only due to realizing our not really realizing mind as such that distinct aspects of it manifesting, such as Buddhas or sentient beings, the ultimate or the seeming, samsara or nirvana, appear and are expressed in this way. Nagarjuna's praise to Dharmadhatu says, mind as such is seen as too worldly and beyond the world. By clinging to it as a self, it is samsara in your, in your own, very own awareness, true reality. What is this false and correct conceptuality or imagination, which has three parts? The first is the way in which samsara is based on false conceptuality. Beginning and end depend on nothing but imagination through wind-like formation. And uh, ignorance is always compared, uh, described with the analogy of wind. Uh, karma and afflictions are created. So when we talk about the second noble truth, what's the cause of suffering? The uh, outer reason is given by the Buddha in the early teachings as desire. The inner reason is given. Uh, I'm not sure if by the Buddha in, in, in any sources that would be interesting to find, but certainly like by Jonga Kongchul in his Treasury of Knowledge, he describes the second noble truth as consisting of karma and of uh, afflictions or klesias. And Trump Rinpoche explains it that same way in his seminary teachings, now in the profound treasury. And then the uh, secret uh, cause of suffering, the second noble truth, is ignorance, the three different types of ignorance. Through these, through the... Uh, the activity of karma and klesha, skandhas, dhatus, ayatanas, in other words, the, the three realms, all dualistically appearing phenomena are displayed. Though mind is such, the heart of the victors, which is naturally pure, lacks the particular characteristics of beginning and end. A temporal beginning and end depend on nothing but superimpositions through false imagination. This refers to the rising of wind-like imagination by virtue of space-like mind as such being unaware of itself. That is, the formation of the afflicted mind stirring, which entails clinging to mind as such as being me and a self. The stirring of the afflicted mind creates karma and afflictions, which are like water. Through these karmas and afflictions, the five skandhas, such as form, the eighteen dhatus, the six dhatus that are the focal objects, the six that are the sense faculties as the supports for the consciousnesses, and the six um, consciousnesses which are supported, and the twelve ayatanas, the six inner ayatanas, such as the eye sense faculty, and the six outer, such as form, and so forth, which all together resemble the orb of the earth, in other words, like everything in the world, are produced. Just as beings are supported by the earth, all dualistically appearing phenomena will not be really established from the perspective of mistakenness are displayed as if they were. The Uttaratajra says improper mental engagement rests on the nature of mind and improper mental 
engagement produces karma and afflictions. Improper mental engagement being uh, another way of talking about ignorance, basic ignorance. It rests on the nature of mind, which is pure, and it is the uh, cause of karma and afflictions. From the water of karma and afflictions, so their analogy is being like water, skandhas, dhatus, and ayatanas arise. The root of samsara originates from adopting and rejecting the one who adopts and rejects these is mistakenness through rejecting mind's own appearances. Where should they cease through adopting mind's own appearances? What should come about? Is clinging to duality not delusive indeed? Thus, since appearances are mind's own appearances, they are not established as the duality of apprehender and apprehended, although they're experienced in that way, they're not established. However, consciousness is the one who adopts and rejects these imaginary objects, the non-existence that originate from mistaken imagination are imputed as being existent, thus appearing as the duality of, yes, you got it, you know who, apprehender and apprehended. Through adopting the desirable and rejecting the undesirable among these objects, consciousness is mistakenness. If you wonder why the reasons are as follows, since outer objects are superimpositions, meaning inflated conceptuality uh, by a mistaken mind, but do not really exist, there is nothing apprehended. So we think we're engaging with objects all the time, but there's nothing there, so there's no real apprehension. Because this, what is apprehended, does not exist, there is definitely no apprehender. Because an apprehender only exists uh, when there is an apprehension. Um, that depends on it either still due to the power of beginningless latent tendencies unfolding both apprehender and apprehended appear. For example, just as there is nothing to be adopted or rejected and naturally empty space, inasmuch as objects are the appearances of your own mind, there is neither anything undesirable nor anything to be rejected. On the other hand, what should come about through adopting these very appearances of your own mind? There is nothing to be adopted. <laughs> therefore, uh, it, therefore is false imagination, the one who clings to nothing but minds own appearances being the duality of something to adopt and reject, not delusive? Most certainly it is delusive, it is not real but delusive. Uh, but what about remedial thoughts? Thoughts about renunciation and compassion and so forth. Understanding this is indeed said to be the remedy, but the thought of non-duality is not real either. So if you take the remedy to be real, you're screwed. Henrietta. I, I just found um, this back to that uh, quote again, four hmm. point. 2.2 I found that for some reason this hit me as like yeah where should they cease in other words where would they go you know it's like it kind of made sense to me in some weird way like do you sweep it under the rug or do you, where do you put something you know it just there's no place to put it so why are we it's it's like we want to somehow reject things that how do how do you even reject it in other words 
<laughs> there's no place for it to go, <laughs> right? I mean, keep keep that me. going. Keep that going as long as you can. That's good. <laughs> it just struck That's me a as a attitude. very interesting phrase. Where should they cease? You know. Yeah. Did where you, would it happen? Where? Where? Yeah. Exactly. Where would things that don't exist go? <laughs> where would they go? Where would non-existing things go? To the, they go. I saw this quote, something like, uh, oh, God, something about lost socks appear as, oh, oh I'll, I'll come back to you with it later. <laughs> it was pretty funny, though. Anyway, um, where the heck are we? Help me out here. 4.2.3. Uh, bottom of uh, 2.13, thanks. The meaning of uh, remedial thoughts. So this is a remediation going on here. Here we uh, Darn. Anyway, understanding this is indeed said to be the remedy, but the thought of non-duality is not real either. For the thought, for, uh, sorry, for the lack of thought just turns into a thought. You thought about emptiness, dissecting form and so on into parts. Are you not therefore mistaken yourself, fooled by your own mental activity? Nevertheless, this was taught in order to stop the clinging to reality. There's no uh, alternative. You have to teach correct conceptualization, but it can very easily become a trap of uh, thinking that you've figured things out and you know what's real. You know. You know the truth, and you cling to your understanding of um, emptiness, which is said to be the worst downfall because it's very hard to uproot. Understanding it in this way, thinking there is no duality um, of apprehender and apprehended. It is indeed said to be the remedy for these dualistic appearances. But that very thought, there is no duality of apprehender and apprehended, and they are empty, is not real or ultimate either. For just as you may think, my son is no more after you dreamt that he died. Though there is no son who could really die in a dream, this consciousness about the lack of thought that thinks apprehended and apprehended or not established as two just turns into a great thought which, with which you boast to yourself as Shanti Deva is um, entering into the way of the Bodhisattva says, therefore the lack of a device, delusive entity is clearly delusive too. Thus, when one's own uh, one's son dies in a dream, the concession the conception, rather, he does not exist, removes the thought that he does exist, but it is also delusive. It is taught that emptiness is the remedy for reification, but if one fixates on emptiness, this is an incurable view. Quoting from the Buddha in the Ranakuta Sutra, Kashipa, those who have views about the person that are as big as Mount Meru, you know, in other words, narcissists, total egomaniacs. We, we don't, won't, I don't have to name any, but um, uh, are better off than those who are proudly entertain their views about emptiness. Why is this kashapa as emptiness means 
to emerge from all views, I declare that those who have views about this very emptiness are incurable. They're deluded by their own belief in undiludedness. And in the Mulabhidyamaka Karaka, by Nagarjuna, the root versus on the middle way, by the flaw of having views about emptiness, those of little understanding are ruined, are brought to ruin. And the victors taught that emptiness means to eradicate all views, while those who have views about emptiness will not accomplish anything. I mean, they go on, it goes on at some length about this important point. Therefore, the very state of mind that fixates on emptiness must be relinquished also. The ornament of Mahayana Sutras declares the mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists. Then it is realized that mind does not exist either. So this is this fourfold progression. The intelligent ones are aware that both do not exist and abide in the Dharma Dasha in which these are absent. So the object does not exist, the subject does not exist, uh, both do not exist, and there's no who understands this. There's no, nothing else going on. Shantideva, again, in his way of the Bodhisattva system, familiarity with the latent tendencies of emptiness. The latent tendencies of enti- entities will be relinquished through familiarity with utter non-existence. Later on, these two will be relinquished. Uh, so presumably that's the better way of dealing with the situation. Um, I don't know, that's a little unclear. I like the latent tendencies of emptiness, though. By dissecting form and so on, which are nothing but appearances of your own mind, just like objects in a dream, into distinct parts of being one or many, there arises the thought about emptiness in the sense that just as with space, there's nothing whatsoever as an object of mind. So this is one of the most traditional ways of understanding the emptiness of phenomena as being uh, composed of parts that are composed of parts, etc. You, this consciousness who is the one doing this dissecting into parts, are you not mistaken yourself too about actual reality? All appearances are the mind's own light appearance and emptiness, inseparable, like the reflection of the moon and water. Therefore, if you dissect what is not established as something to be dissected into parts, this is mistaken. Through not understanding this inseparability of appearance and emptiness, by thinking that something that existed as an entity before is destroyed through emptiness later, one clings to non-existence. So uh, by dissecting phenomena that don't exist, you are, uh, it's mistaken uh, because you're taking them as if there's something that needs to be dissected. This is said to be a great mistake. Sarah also chimes in and says, whoever clings to entities is like cattle. Whoever clings to things is stupid like cows. This is the more literal translation I've seen in other places. Those who cling to the reality of phenomena or things as being real are like cattle. But whoever clings to the lack of, of entities, whoever clings to, to emptiness, is even more stupid. Nevertheless, in no. order to... No. Oh. <laughs> 
stupid like we're all fucking stupid like cattle because we think things are real. Nevertheless, in order to stop the clinging to reality, such as taking the five skandhas to be a single unit, yeah, me. This way of dissecting them into distinct parts and thus determining them to be empty was taught in the Buddha's words and the treatises on them, all of which are authentic sources of valid cognitions of remedial thought processes. Explaining the Buddha heart. This has three parts. Did I do that right? Turning the page, yeah. <laughs> uh, the first part is pointing out the essence of the Buddha heart. Finally, we're getting to the essence of the essence. All is neither real nor delusive. Damn. Can't things be simple? Held to be like a reflection of the moon and water by the learned. Just this ordinary mind is called Dharmadhatu and heart of the victors. Ordinary mind is Tathagata Dagarma, the Dharmadhatu. Ordinary. Just this ordinary mind. It's not beyond this ordinary mind. Neither is it to be improved by the noble ones, nor made worse by sentient beings. You can't make your mind better or worse. Sorry. Without doubt, it may be expressed through many conventional terms, but its actual reality is not understood through expression. So this is a difficult, unusual teaching that uh, you don't want to like lay on people at all stages of the path necessarily, such as beginners who are having terrible neurotic difficulties. Since all phenomena that appear in this way are primordial unborn and not really established, ultimately they're not real. But since mind's own unimpeded creative display appears in distinct ways, creative display, what a nice term, from the perspective of mistakenness, they're not delusive either. For example, when a reflection of the moon appears in clear water from the very time of its appearing as the moon, it never exists as the moon. At the same time, while there is no moon in the water, the mere appearance of the form and this color of the moon is unimpeded. Even though it doesn't exist, it appears. At the same time, while there's the, sorry, to appear as the moon and actually be non-existent are inseparable. To appear as a moon and be non-existent are inseparable. Anything that appears is non-existent. Um, and the characteristic of this reflection of the moon and water is being empty. The characteristic of all appearances is that they are empty. Only empty things appear, and only um, only empty things appear. If one understands this, the clinging to a real moon is liberated in its own place. Likewise, from the very time of the appearances of objects appearing, they never existed as something real. While they do not really exist, uh, their mere appearance appears in an unimpeded way. Therefore, through understanding appearance and emptiness to be inseparable and their characteristic as being empty, the clinging to appearances is liberated in its own place. This is what the victor and his children, who are learned and all objects of knowledge, maintain and hold. Again, uh, sorry, Henrietta. Um, this term unimpeded comes up a lot. 
and it comes up in reference to the kairos also. And I don't quite understand what that means. Yeah, I think it's sort of simply like there's nothing that obstructs their appearing um, because they either appear due to their being empty or they appear to, due to being spontaneously present. And so there's nothing causing them to appear and there's nothing uh, obstructing them to appear. Something like that. While they do not really exist, their mere appearance appears in an unimpeded way. Um, because they don't exist, you can't impede them. Uh, <laughs> if they actually existed, then you could you could stop them. You could try to obstruct them. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Just as the nature is primordially unborn, neither delusive nor real, everything is held to be like a reflection of the moon and water. Therefore, yogini understand this. Thus, the nature of the union of appearance and emptiness, just this ordinary mind in its natural state, uncontrived by philosophical systems and remedies, is called by many names, such as Dharmadhatu, Dharmakaya, Great Bliss, by Mahasuka. Prajnaparamita, and heart of the victors, Tathagatagarbha. But their meaning is just a single one. That is, mind as such, mind in its natural state. Except for the mere difference of whether one is aware of this or not, it is the nature of phenomena whose essence is unchanging. So there's nothing greater than this very mind itself of ordinary sentient beings. Therefore, it is neither to be improved by the noble ones, such as this fundamental ground being revealed at the time of fruition, or previously non-existent qualities being produced. Once bodhisattvas realize this ground on the path, nor is it made worse by sentient beings, such as them not being endowed with the qualities of its essence, when they do not realize it during the phase of the ground. For the nature of phenomena is free from something to be added or removed. As the Uttaratantra says, it is the same before as after. That famous quote, this is the changeless nature of all phenomena. The title of that Uttaratantra, the changeless nature. <coughs> this actuality is inconceivable even for bodhisattvas on the ten bhumis, much less for those of us before the boomies. Therefore, until perfect Buddha has attained the actual reality of the basic nature, may no doubt be expressed through many words in conventional terms, but the actual reality of the nature of phenomena, just as it is, is not understood through expressing it by conventional terms, because the nature of phenomena is inconceivable and not an object of dialectics. You may wonder, granted, okay, granted, <laughs> Why is it then that, that what is the sphere of Buddhas alone is taught to ordinary beings? Why are you teaching this openly? The victor, no, the victorious one, Maitreya, not victor, Maitreya said in his Uttara Tantra, they taught this in order to eliminate the five faults in those in whom they exist. These are faint-heartedness, contempt for inferior sentient beings, clinging to what is not real, 
deprecating the actual dharma and excessive attachment to oneself. Accordingly, this is taught in order to relinquish the five following five faults. This is taught, meaning the, the meaning of the Tathagata, the karma, the nature of it. Through not knowing what the Buddha heart is, which is endowed with all qualities, pervades all sentient beings, one remains faint-hearted and thinks, I will not attain Buddhahood, thus not generating bodhicitta. I can't possibly attain Buddhahood. I can't possibly attain, have bodhicitta. So why bother? Uh, have Buddha nature. Through not knowing that inferior sentient beings possess the basic element as well, one will have contempt for them. Furthermore, one clings to the stains which obscure the basic element and do not exist in actual fact as being real and superimpose existence onto them. Oh, my neurosis is so real. One deprecates the primordial existent actual qualities of Buddhahood, such as the powers, by saying that they don't exist. I don't have, I don't have these qualities within me. Uh, through not knowing that all sentient beings are alike and that the basic element exists in them, once the slightest qualities have come forth in one's mind, one becomes proud, thinking, "I am unusual. I'm special. I am superior." Some explain that due to this instruction on their purpose, the teachings on the actuality of the Tathagata Garbha are of expedient meaning because it, it, it accomplishes all these active goals. However, if that were the case, then all the teachings on emptiness would also be of expedient meaning since they were spoken for the purpose of putting an end to the clinging to identity, singularity, and single units. Such people may think that this is not the same since emptiness is the basic nature of all phenomena, but if even the sheer emptiness that they maintain which still belongs to the sphere of ordinary mental states with the basic nature, why would the nature of phenomena that is beyond mind, the nature of luminosity, not be the basic nature? It's a little bit of a obscure reasoning there. Therefore, everything that is said in the middle turning of the wheel of Dharma, the second turning, is a teaching that this inconceivable Datu is devoid of the characteristics of being conditioned by arising uh, and so forth. Uh, but it is not a teaching that this basic element does not exist, which is the way many people interpret the second turning teachings, saying that uh, the second turning points out the emptiness of all phenomena, including Satagata Garbha and conclude that, therefore, the qualities of Buddha nature are also not spontaneously present. However, the second turning teachings are a non-implicative negation. They don't imply that the qualities do not exist. The Garjan again has praised the Dharma. Not through the sutras that teach emptiness, however many spoken by the victors, they all remove afflictions, but never ruin. They never damage the uh, the qualities of the Dhatu, the Tathagata the, the Garbha. What are its qualities? Briefly, as for the unimpeded play of this, the 64 qualities are a coarse classification. Each one is said to consist of tens of millions of qualities. This Buddha heart is empty in essence, lucid in nature, and its way of appearing is an unimpeded play. As for the latter aspect, 
the unimpeded play, the explanation that the 64 qualities, the 32 qualities of the Dharmakaya and the 32 of the Rupakayas exist in it in a complete way is a classification that refers to the main ones among its qualities. If treated in detail, each one of them is said to consist of tens of millions or countless qualities. In detail, we have this list of the the ten powers and so forth. The ten powers of Buddhahood are knowing what is the case and what is not the case, karma and maturation, knowing constitutions, faculties and inclinations, the paths that lead everywhere, the dhyanas, the divine eye, recollecting places of rebirth and peace. These are the ten powers. Due to having generated bodhicitta before and having a firm commitment to their vows, all Buddhas possess these ten kinds of powers which represent the unrivaled force of their capacity, their ability. One of the main qualities of Buddhahood is the capability of helping other sentient beings. And this manifests in these ten ways. The power, first power is to know what is the case. That to know what is the case that pleasant karmic maturations are obtained through virtue and what is not the case that unpleasant maturations can be obtained through virtue as well as their opposites. So knowing the activity of karma, the, the fundamental ways that the law of karma manifests. The second power is to know the maturation of karma through knowing karma and its results, meaning presumably knowing the infinite details of the activity of karma. The third power is to know the various mental constitutions, sorry, constituents of sentient beings through having engaged them in accordance with these constitutions, i.e. really knowing the minds of beings, of students. The fourth power is to know the higher and lower faculties of these beings through having taught the Dharma in accordance with these faculties understanding people's capabilities and teaching them appropriately. The fifth power is to know the various inclinations of beings, so having dealt with them in accordance with these inclinations. Uh, not that different from the fourth one. The sixth power is to know through having become familiar with all yanas, the three yanas, or the various paths that lead everywhere at samsara nirvana. Here the three yanas generally usually refers to Shravaka, Prateka, Buddha, and Bodhisattva yana. Um, the seventh power is to know through having mainly focused on samadhi what is free from stains and afflictions such as the dhyana states, the absorption states, which are played down in the Mahayana tradition, but an essential part of it as a way of purifying uh, all three of the realms, of the three realms. The eighth power is to know by virtue of one's superior intention and so forth towards sentient beings, their future deaths, transitions and rebirths through the divine eye. This is when the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, or rather the morning of his enlightenment, sees the uh, births, the, the previous births and future births of all sentient beings. The ninth power is to recollect due to the Buddha's virtues not becoming lost, the former places of rebirth of themselves and others, pretty similar. Uh, recollecting as opposed to seeing through the divine eye. Okay. Um, and then the tenth is to know the termination of what is contaminated, to know how to overcome afflictions. They also possess the four fearlessnesses 
which are based on these ten powers are enlightened realization of all phenomena, teaching the obstacles, teaching the path and cessations of all being, uh, sorry, all being indisputable. The four fearlessnesses that are based on these ten powers are as follows. The fearlessness about asserting the aspect of one's own welfare that consists of excellent realization means to declare amidst the people that surround one, I have com realized completely perfect enlightenment within the Datu of all phenomena. This is the Buddha's lion's roar proclamation of his complete enlightenment, which he did in a, in a seemingly arrogant way, but uh, in, in a way that was skillfully uh, incentivizing those around him. And there being no opponents able to prove that one has not attained realized enlightenment. Secondly, the fearlessness about teaching the phenomena that are hindrances for the welfare of others means teaching the Dharma. Since desire and so on are the obstacles for liberation, they are put to an end. And there being no opponents able to prove that these are not obstacles. The fearlessness about teaching the path that brings forth the welfare of others means teaching the 37 factors oriented toward enlightenment are the path to bring you out of samsara. This famous scheme, those 37 wings of enlightenment, bodhipaksha, that are um, a list of, uh, I think it's eight groupings that map along the five paths, starting with the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right endeavors, the four miraculous feet, and then the five strengths and the five powers, seven uh, wings of enlightenment, and the Eightfold Noble Path, or Path of Noble Ones. And uh, there being no opponents able to prove that these are not the path, the fearlessness about demonstrating the aspect of one's own welfare that consists of consummate relinquishment means teaching, I have attained the cessation in which all contaminations, including their latent tendencies, have been put to an end, and there being no way of proving that this was not obtained. In brief, whether directly or indirectly, these four statements are indisputable by anyone who argues in accord with the Dharma. Lion's roar. And finally, the 18 unique qualities. Due to that cause, the 18 unique qualities are unmistakenness, lack of chatter. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Lack of chatter. You don't see Buddhas chatting particularly, I guess, as the, the uh, import of that. Undeclining awareness, constant meditative equipoise, lacking the plethora of discriminating notions. Um, how do you quantify exactly the plethora? Lacking unexamining indifference, undeclining striver, vigor, recollection, samadhi, prajna, and the vision of the wisdom of liberation, activities preceded by wisdom and it being unobscured with regard to time. Always being endowed with these 32 is the Dharmakaya, the 32 is the 18 unique qualities, the four fearlessnesses, and the 10 powers. Due to the cause of having obtained the four fearlessnesses, Buddhas have 18 dharmas that are unique to them when compared to others. The sixth that consists of conduct, so the 18, the first six are conduct, unmistakenness, since their physical conduct lacks being mistaken, their ex the expressions of their speak lack chatter, <laughs> um, lacking forgetfulness, since their mind's awareness 
of all noble objects is undeclining. It doesn't change, doesn't deteriorate. Being in constant meditative equipoise during the four kinds of conduct, instead of like losing their equipoise between sessions, the Buddhas are continually in equipoise, whether they're meditating or, or not. Lacking the plethora of discriminating notions about differences between samsara and nirvana, and lacking indifference that does not examine everything in a distinct manner. In other words, constantly examining everything in a distinct manner. <clears throat> then there's the six qualities that um, consist of realization or to lack any decline in their striving to teach the Dharma no matter what difficulties there may be. Likewise, vigor toward this goal recollection of those to be guided and so on the samadhi excuse me I guess my vigor is is declining <laughs> I have declining vigor <laughs> the samadhi that realizes equality the prajna that knows all of samsara and nirvana the vision of the wisdom of liberation that is liberated from all contaminations including their seeds six are completely unreclining or declining. The three qualities that consist of enlightenment. Reclining? <laughs> A little kickback there. That's right. Um, the enlightened, uh, let's see, the enlightened activity of the body for which there are no sentient beings that could not be guided through any one among all the different ways of conduct. The unenlightened activity of speech, the enlightened activity of speech, rather, by virtue of being endowed with the 60 branches, which is this reference to these 60 qualities of melodiousness that Brahma was famous for, apparently, and the enlightened activity of mind through knowing those to be guided and caring for them with loving kindness, putting them in the cradle of loving kindness. Thus, Buddhas managed it all. These three enlightened activities are preceded by wisdom always and followed by wisdom. So these are enveloped by wisdom. They're not done without understanding the true nature of reality. The three qualities that consist of wisdom are the unobscured vision of wisdom that is unattached and unhindered with regard to the three times. That is whatever happens in past, present, and future. And being endowed with these 32 qualities is the naturally pure dharmakaya. Once the adventitious stains have become pure, the power of these qualities becomes manifest. The manner of them not appearing, despite their their present existence, this is the quandary. Why don't they appear if they exist? At present, we oppose them actively. I know I actively oppose these qualities. That's why I'm so tired all the time, because I'm very actively opposing them. Since we lack certainty beyond what it is, just as it is, we produce the imaginary, construing what is non-existent as being existent, i.e. everything. The conceptuality produced by this is the other dependent. Through not knowing the perfect, we are agitated by our own doing, agitating ourselves. Alas, and those who realize these qualities of the Dharmakaya to be what really is, is the knowledge of reality. Even their present little power is reality. Casting away this knowledge, we fabricate what is unreal and are carried away by the agitation of pursuing what is unreal. 
through the qualities of though the qualities of Dharmakaya exist in a complete way in mind as such, in this ordinary mind itself. So Tathagatahar, at the present time of the ground, as sentient beings, we oppose these qualities through lobbying. How do we do this in this mind as such? The inseparability of Datu and awareness. All Buddha qualities are complete and at the same time not established as uh, any uh, essence whatsoever, as having any essence or existing in essence. Since we do not know and lack certainty about what is like this, just as it is, we produce the imaginary nature. That is, our conceptuality is construing non-existent objects as existent. The mistaken conceptuality produced by these objects is the other dependent nature. Ornament to mind, a sutra says, therefore what is this particular kind of darkness of not seeing what exists and seeing what does not exist? Which constantly we're doing under the influence of you-know-who, the perfect nature, the ultimate nature, that is the unchanging nature of phenomena, or the nature as such beyond apprehend or apprehend. It is not aware of and does not know itself. Through this, our very own doing, clinging to the reality, the appearances of own mistakenness, turns into the latent tendencies that perpetuate samsara, and we are agitated by many sufferings. Karjana says in his summary of the Mahayana in 20 verses, just as through their own struggling in a swamp, some childish beings sink into it. The image of uh, quicksand, where the more you struggle, the more you sink. Through being mired in the swamp of conceptuality, sentient beings are unable to emerge. The more we try to unravel or understand or explain our neurosis, the worse it gets. Those who view non-entities as entities experience feelings of suffering. It doesn't say they experience suffering, they experience the feeling of suffering, because the suffering is obviously non-existent. Also, we should coin the term, the ones that you've been, you know, for apprehended and apprehended, they, they who shall not be named. <laughs> they who are named over and over and over again. <laughs> We can call them like Voldemort, they who shall not be named. That's right, okay, the nameless ones. Um, alas, has the meaning of being amazed, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Alas, where is this alas? Oh, it's in the end of that 4.3.2.2.1.4 stanza. <laughs> you got to love their outline system. Why, and those who realize that the unchanging, perfect nature and these qualities of the Dharmakaya that have the characteristic of being inseparable from it, because all the qualities of the Dharmakaya are forever inseparable from it. <coughs> um, these qualities of the Dharmakaya exist in the mind streams of sentient beings as the essence of ultimate reality, just as it is. It is. And who realize this to be what is real in a trustworthy way? This is the prajna. That is the knowledge of ultimate reality, the unmistaken perfect nature. Though these qualities exist at the present time of being ignorant as sentient beings, their power is little. Nevertheless, even their present limited power should be understood as an indication that these qualities exist as ultimate reality. You know, so uh, however neurotic we are, there's always a little light of intelligence that's available if you, if you know how to look for it. 
casting away this knowledge, we fabricate the many mistaken appearances of samsara and nirvana through contriving a split in terms of apprehender and apprehended, those who, the, the unnameable, which are non-existent and unreal ultimately, and are carried away by the wave-like agitation of the many formational consciousnesses that pursue them. That's a good phrase. The many formational consciousnesses that pursue the unnameable. The manner in which is the, this is to be realized with scriptural support. Structural support. Understand now what is just as it is and you attain power in it. In this there is nothing to be removed and not the slightest to be added. Actual reality is to be seen as it really is. Whoever sees actual reality is released. The basic element is empty of what is adventitious, which has the characteristic of being inseparable, but it is not empty of the unsurpassable dharmas, which have the characteristic of being inseparable. Since the presence of the dharmakai in ourselves is realized through study and reflect and under, uh, sorry, and reflection, understanding what is just as it is that all enlightened qualities exist right now in a complete way, and this mind is such the Buddha heart. Through becoming familiar with this understanding, refreshing it again and again, you will realize this just as it is, which is sufficient. You will directly attain the power of these qualities. Why is that? In this mind is such the Sugata heart, there are no separate stains to be removed that are established as any real entities other than just your being fettered through your own discriminating notions and mistaken appearances. Since the Sugata heart is naturally endowed with its qualities, there's not the slightest to be added or produced newly that did not exist before. Therefore, actual reality, mind as such, free from something to be removed or added, is to be seen as it really is, that is, in the manner of it being unable to look at itself. Through looking in this way of not looking. Did I get that right? Let's see, therefore, actual reality, mind is as such free from something yes, to be removed right. or added is to be seen as it really is. That is the manner of being unable to look at itself because it's uh, beyond being uh, an existent thing. Uh, through, this, through looking in this way of not looking, of a Mahamudra jargon thrown in for good measure, through looking in this way of not looking, it is seen that mind is such the inseparability of Tatu wisdom actually is this inseparability. So that's the key in uh, all of Mahamudra's looking in this way of not looking, by the way. Hence the adventitious stains are nothing but your discriminating notions, and these lack any essence of their own, just like image, just like mirages, rather. So uh, all afflictions are only, they only uh, appear in the, in the mind that uh, thinks it's afflicted. They actually don't exist as reference. If this lack of any essence is actually seen for what it is, poof, you're released from being fettered by these discriminating notions. The Sri Mahabala Tantra says, a glorious great power Tantra says in this there is nothing to be removed and not the slightest to be added whoever sees true reality is released 
since mind as such totally lacks any activity relinquishing and attaining. The stains are not the nature of the mind. Hence, the basic element of the Sugata heart is not tainted by the adventitious stains, which have the characteristic of being separable from it as such, thus being empty of them and naturally pure. But there is no object of purification to be added newly, and the enlightened qualities are the nature of mind as such, therefore the basic element is not empty of the unsurpassable Buddha dharmas, which have the characteristic of being inseparable and indivisible from mind as such, because they have no separate essence. So they're all one, they're all inseparable. They're beyond one and many. This is the meaning that is explained in the Sri Maladevi Sutra, the glorious uh, Queen Sri Maladevi Sutra, and the passages in the above texts of NT that are quotations from the Uttaratasha. This is the NT, by the way. Explaining the qualities of the Rupakayas, the form bodies, has three parts, and the first is the essence of the qualities. In this, the nature of the two rubricas consists of the 32 marks, major, sorry, and minor marks. The aspect of appearance in the Dharmakaya is taught to be the play of Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya. That is the nature of qualities of the two rubricas, which consists of the 32 excellent major marks and the 80 minor marks. Without elaborating any of them here, thank God. The major marks are as taught in the Uttara Tantra by well-planted feet marked with wheels. <laughs> Sorry, we shouldn't laugh, but <clears throat> if uh, if you have time, you got to look. You know, just like Google major and minor marks of a Buddha. It's like you come up with this very unusual list of things, which includes uh, the Buddha has uh, feet which are flat and completely like equal, all the toes are equal sized, and um, that's the meaning of well-planted, and they have wheels on the bottom, they come equipped with the wheels, they roll, <laughs> and um, they're also webbed slightly, like a tortoise feet. Anyway, these slightly different ways of enumerating the major marks in these texts, two texts represent the intentions of distinct sutras. The minor marks are as taught in the Abhisamaya by the sages' nails are copper-colored, so the, the, the uh, rumors that the Buddha never colored his fingernails are erroneous, because he used copper-colored nail polish and a glossy version instead of the matte version and they were very prominent. The nails were like prominent, they were long, right? Justification that they dwelled in the body. So, you know, he was not your ordinary guy. He definitely, you know, had a certain flair about him. To attain qualities of your own body, this body is not created by itself. Cha, I don't know who Cha is, but Ishvara, Brahma, real external particles, or hidden objects. Through the refinement of the impure transmutations of the two of the five gates, at that point, the conventional term attainment is applied. Attainment. We'll come back to that, I suspect. Since the cause that leads to the attainment and the qualities of the two rupakayas, the major and minor marks, is just this body of your own, which is made up of nadis, vayus, and tilakas, which we saw earlier as Carl's way of 
correctly representing Nada, Prani, and Bindu, which are the sort of cosmic uh, structure of the body. These qualities come from your own completely pure body, which everyone has a completely pure body, in case you were wondering. You may wonder, see, where this body comes from, according to the assertion of the Tibetan followers of Bun. It is created by Cha, or as maintained by the Tirtakas, by a permanent single and independent self. Ishvara, Brahma, and so on, or as held by the Shravakas, who are Vaibhashikas, by partless, really established external particles, or according to the Sautrantakas, by the real objects that exist hidden or concealed from consciousness and are able to cast an aspect towards the sense faculties. That's this interesting way of uh, understanding reality and perception that's uh, presented in the Sautrantika uh, school, which is the basis for all debate in, in the Buddhist tradition, which we're going to have to study more in the coming courses so that we have a better foundation for understanding uh, the subtleties of emptiness as presented in the ninth chapter of the Bodhicharavatara and commented on by Nipa. And uh, let's see. And are able to, let's see, although what appears as this aspect is not real. However, this body is not created by any of these factors and these and any other such assertions. So then through what is it created? The mind appears as if it were a mind, and the mind also appears as if it were a body, thus existing as these two aspects. From among these, the bodies would appear subsequently, hence appearing from the aspect that seems to be a mind. In other words, the body doesn't really exist. It's the seeming appearance of the mind. The profound inner reality says, thus the triad of Nadi, Vayu, and Tilaka appears from the aspect that is mind. Therefore, until the mind has become pure, also throughout the three intermediate states uh, that happen after we die, the continuity of the body is interrupted. Even in the formless realm, there is a material body, uh, sorry, a mental body. And uh, so... Uh, when one's born in a formless realm, one goes through the barda without a mental body, and then there's a mental body. You take birth in a mental body in one of the formless realms. What is called formless is a mental body. Thus, the aspect that is mind when pure becomes the qualities of the dharmakaya as taught above. The aspect that is the body of the impure transmutations of the two of the consciousnesses of the five sense gates is refined and becomes pure through realization on the path through this. At that point when the nature of the basic state becomes manifest, the conventional expression and term having attained the rubricas, this is applied, although it's, it's incorrect. As for that attainment, once the first bhumiya is attained, the five sense faculties undergo a, a change of state mastery. This means that each one of them, such as the eye sense faculty, is able to perceive all five sense objects. This is uh, synesthesia to the max, right? Have you guys ever heard of synesthesia? Where like people have their sense capabilities crossed over so they like hear, uh, hear colors 
and they uh, they see sounds and things like that. It's really bizarre, but there's a small percentage of the population has this. Anyway, in, uh, in this situation on the first booming, we have you can hear all the the objects of all the five senses and so forth. Through this, all five senses attain mastery over the arising of 100 times 12 specific qualities. They're, they're really into these categorizations, and there's this famous list of the, uh, uh, these 112 qualities that are uh, accumulated over the time of the five paths. Ornaments of the Mayana Sutra says, in the change of state of the five sense faculties, supreme mastery is attained once the perception of all their objects and the arising of the 1,200 qualities in all of them, over the perception, sorry. These qualities increase accordingly on the second boomy and so on. So in the traditional presentations, they magnify, they're like squared, the number of them is times themselves, and they multiply in that uh, fashion. Uh, and so on. Once they reach their culmination on the Buddha boomy, boomy, boomy of Buddhahood, the number of these qualities is infinite and inconceivable. The quote is, uh, says, through the differences in accomplishing their deeds in terms of number and realms, always in all aspects, Buddha emanation should be known to be inconceivable. Oh, one more page, sorry. Uh, some may think it's reasonable for the stains of mind to become Buddhahoods once they have become pure. However, since the body has arisen from the condition of father and mother, as the nature of being impure and imperishable. Therefore, it's not reasonable for unconditioned qualities to arise from something conditioned like the body. However, Nagarjuna declares, due to realization and its lack, all is in this very body. Uh, through our own conceptions, we are bound, but when knowing our nature, we are free. And Nasanga says in his compendium of Mahayana, through the change of state of the skanda form, master over pure Buddha realms, Kaya's excellent major mana marks, infinite voices, and the invisible mark on the crown of the head is attained. There's this thing called an Ushnisha, which is one of the marks of Buddhahood. This big pimple emerges at the side of the Brahma Rondra. You'll see this in most depictions of the Buddha. It's like this little couplet. It's like a bun, like a hair bun, but it's actually part of the head. It's a very cool thing. Anyway, um, this thus is exemplified by these quotes, even in the Dharma systems that accord with the common yana, meaning the sutrayanas. There are statements about the major and minor marks that are the change of state of the body, so that the body can transform into the body of a, of a rupakaya. The two-part Hevajra Tantra says, in the ladies' bhaga of great bliss, I'm not going to explain what that is, you sort of should be able to figure that out, the teacher with the 32 major marks, the principal one with the 80 minor marks, dwells in the form of what is called purity, in the ladies' bhaga of great bliss. As in this passage in the uncommon yanas, meaning the Vajrayana, it is said again and again that this very body has the nature of the Rupakayas. And, you know, enlightenment happens in the body, right? Not the mind. The body transforms in complete enlightenment. Therefore, in this body that appears as the creative display of the mind, all the qualities of the two Rupakayas exist in a complete way, but since we are fettered by our own mistaken sexuality, they are invisible. Once we become free from this bondage, the body will appear as the qualities 
of the two Rupakayas. And the Vajrayana system, being the uh, par excellence of skillful means, has these sophisticated ways of dissolving our conceptual projection of our body, <coughs> completely dissolving that projection, and then re-arising as the Rupakaya, the purified body. And there's all these different methods for doing that, and one does it over and over again until it really happens. For these 64 qualities of the Dharmakaya and Rupakaya, they are both direct and conditional causes. From among these, the direct or the, the cause of the Dharmakaya's mind is such with its nature of luminosity, while the direct cause of the Rupakaya is the very fact that the mind appears as if it were a body. The conditional causes that purify and eliminate the stains are the causes of each of the 64 qualities being accomplished. These are as discussed in their blah, 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 such as the knowledge about what is or is not the case through having generated bodhicitta before and hands and feet being marked with wheels though having a, through having escorted the guru. I guess that's the idea is that the karmic result of having used one's hands and feet to escort a guru is that one obtains the wheel of dharma on those hands and feet. So these hands next time I'm counting on that. I was guaranteed it here. I read it here. <laughs> and those, uh, and those of you who also have escorted the guru. Anyway, let's uh, end there because we're past our allotted time, and we'll continue from there. We almost made it to uh, finished up four point three point two, and made it to four point three point three. But we'll do that next week. <laughs> Manner, purity, and impurity. Is that a wrap? Or should we go you, one more page? <laughs> no, no, you thoroughly exhausted me of my ability to analyze <laughs> myself and other. I have nothing left. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of exhausting, huh? It's just like this. Uh, interminable uh, onslaught of uh, words and ideas and the same thing over and over again in many different ways. But I feel like I need to hear it over and over and over and over and over again for it, it does. to sink it, in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is very helpful to hear it a lot and to hear all the different aspects of it explained and certainly way more like I, I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Uttara Tantra and uh, the commentary by John Wilcontrol in the book called Buddha Nature Big. it's like mind numbing you know compared yeah, this to this this isn't as tough as that yeah no this, this is lightweight <laughs> and this also as you mentioned it has the Mahamudra views in there and they also had a you know a couple of pages of Dzogchen view very well elaborated and yeah yeah the mind, the grounds. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, yeah that's the, cool. The three, it was like completely, you know, it, it's it, some of it could be refreshing as well if you, but you know, you have to take it slowly though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Let it sink in. Yes, uh, Gail. Hi. Hi. Is any of this repetitiveness the doing of the translator, or is it the commentary itself? I mean, would a different translator translate it in a more flowing fashion or not? 
well, those are sort of two different questions. I think a different translator would translate it in, in a more flowing manner. And uh, there, there are certainly a number of different translations of the root text by uh, Wang Jung Dorje. I'm not sure if there are translations of this commentary, though. That would be interesting to see. Uh, but but uh, Carl, I think we have to trust that he's very um, clear and honest about when when he's adding words and not adding words, and he shows what he's adding in brackets, and it's it's not very much. So the the, the verbosity is very much the work of Jiang and control the repetition and the sort of endless tedious uh, attention to detail. But uh, could it be more flowing and, and easier going? Probably. I think, isn't this also part of, I mean, if we think about it as, you know, in there, it, it, it's, it it's a pedagogical technique, the repetition. Yeah. And also, I think. So that they can remember it and understand it. And, and then as you go over and over again, it's like you recognize, oh, yeah, it, you know, I think the point of that is to recognize, oh, yeah, I get that one because we've talked about it before. Whereas if, it, if you were just going through new, 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 new stuff, it would all be even more over the top. Uh, you know, so yeah. I think you have to kind of value the repetition in some ways because it's like a little glimpse of familiar territory. Yeah, particularly things like having the summary and then an expanded version. And it's pretty typical to have this format of a summary and then an expanded version. And then this like replies to objections where they make up, you know, like what are the possible faults or uh, critiques of this and how would those be addressed, which end up explaining the nuances and how how this view relates to other views and is superior or whatever to other views, which that part is always very helpful as well. So. That's um, Rinpoche. Uh, yeah, did you look at that? Yeah, that that's more flowing. That's a, a little more... Yeah, he's very has condensed. Has a flow to it, yeah. Yeah, that's flowing and it's very, very condensed. And that translator is very good in that way. Peter Roberts, I think, was the translator. Does that ring a bell? He's translated most, you know, a lot of uh, Trauma Rinpoche stuff. Peter Roberts, he's good. Yeah, he's really good. He's very he good. Yeah. So he would, he would definitely be more flowing. I'll try, but that's an interesting uh, point. I'll try to find and see if there's other versions of this and we can compare little sections. Thank you for that. Anything else? Any other thoughts, ideas, suggestions? Uh, what is today? Today is the 13th. So are people 14th. okay? 14th. 14th, thank you. <laughs> people okay meeting next week, which is the 21st? Is that our last class, or no? We're going to go uh, go into next year. I think we'll skip the twenty eighth. I think because uh, people are like turn into these you know, weird holiday creatures of like nothing happens during this time period except you have to suffer with your family, <laughs> sit around all day and, and look at the Christmas tree. <laughs> And, uh, and then we'll pick up again uh, next year. But remember, you have your choice of how to react to phenomena, so you don't have to suffer. Ah, that's right. You can enjoy your Christmas tree. That's right.
you because you can do all sorts of things with your, it's like a emanation manifestation of the trikaya <laughs> and or santa uh, claus you could be santa claus too that's for sure that's right and uh and the next qu course by the way so i'm trying to put together a course on meditation using uh all sorts of different writings by one of my favorite writers is Alan Wallace and his way of presenting meditation has lots of different versions of this in his many books and uh, if anybody's interested in helping me in that like in the following way would be really uh, helpful where he presents the same topic in different books the same like, you know, the presentation of the obstacles and antidotes of shamatha or the stages of Vipassana or something. And, and then you tell me which version is better. So I'll use that. That would be very helpful if you want. Let me know. And I'll send you some readings you can do as you stare at your Christmas tree. So let us dedicate the vast quantities of of the Buddhas. Uh, let's see. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound. Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you for sticking in there with this. It's not an easy book, and many have, have dropped out, and so I really appreciate it. It's, it's interesting to see that people, some of us, are still willing to go through this stuff. That's yeah. great. Well, we, we, we all fit on one screen now, right? Yeah, that's very <laughs> handy. <laughs> that's very handy with, with large size squares, so you can actually see people. But uh, it's a difficult text, takes a lot of effort to go through, but it, I think uh, um, it's, it pays off, you know. So. Anyway, nice to see you. Have a good evening and a good week. See you next Thanks, week. Sir. Thank, Thank you. you.